Okay. Well, good morning. Woo. Um, story goes there was a young 16-year-old Salvation Army soldier. Now, if you remember, there's the Salvation Army in town. We always think of them as the charitable place, right? But they're actually a church, if you didn't know that. So years ago, this was a couple decades ago, this uh, young 16-year-old Salvation Army soldier or church member was walking from his house uh, to one of the, the Salvation Army Bible studies. And in those days, they actually wore uniforms for the Bible studies because it said that they were part of that church and that's what they did. So they kind of had a slight military looking um, uniform they, they wore. And as he's walking by, he went by the pool hall and there were 12 to 15 of his buddies sitting over there from school. And as he's walking by in his Salvation Army uniform, what do you think they're doing? Well, they're jeering him, they're throwing rocks, they're laughing at him, they're inviting him to come join him, and uh, just basically making fun of him. Because he wasn't doing what they were doing, and he totally stood out and didn't fit the image and style of what they were doing. We talk about that today because we're starting a brand new series um, about standing out as a Christian. Now, I say that, I'm sure some of you just kind of went, your mind just went sideways right there, right? About standing out as a Christian, because fact is, we don't like confrontation, do we? Anybody in here just love confrontation when people call you out, or like this young Salvation Army soldier? I mean, you're dressed in your, your church attire, and people are just mocking you and making fun of you and poking fun of you, or like, really, you go to a church, or you conservative, what's wrong with you? You know, you believe in that old-fashioned stuff? We don't like confrontation, do we? I mean, I don't know anyone that really just goes out and, and goes looking for confrontation. Donald Trump, yeah, maybe Donald, Donald Trump, but hey, now. <laughs> now we're going to have a little church war in here. Um, but the Bible tells yeah, us this, like the Bible <laughs> tells us that we are in the world, but what? Uh, Not of the world. And now I don't know, some of us have maybe gone to other countries when you're on vacation, right? Well, when you're in another country, you don't necessarily speak the language, have the lingo, know the exact customs. You're a tourist there. Do you think the locals know that you're not a native of that country? Oh yeah. You stand out, right? I remember, I remember going to Ireland right after high school and I spent the summer there. And I thought, well, this is great. Ireland, they speak English, you know, the same customs. Oh boy, was I wrong. They spoke English, but their dialect was totally, totally different. Their customs were totally different. I remember one of the big things was, this is right out of high school and I'm a little bit naive about things, and I'm in Ireland, and it's like July 2nd, and I'm like, where are the fireworks stands? Where's all the fireworks? Are we gonna have a big parade, and the 4th of July came, and you know what happened in Ireland? Nothing. And all of a sudden hit me, they don't care about the 4th of July. It's not a national holiday in Ireland, right? They have their own holidays. And the reality is, we stand out when we're in a place that we're like a tourist, we're traveling through. And in the Bible, it's the same way. We are called or told that we are in the world for a while, but we are not of the world. In other words, as Christians, we're going through this worldly adventure just kind of like a tourist. And the reality is because we are not of this world and its customs and its mindset and its morality or lack of morality and the way it sees things, we should what? Stand out. 
right? We should be totally obvious where the world's looking at us going, oh, they're not from here, are they? No, I belong to another kingdom. You know, my, this is not my home. I, I'm just a visitor here. Now you think about the chameleon, and the chameleon's a master of disguise, right? We all grow up in high school and junior high knowing that wherever you take a chameleon and you place it on a rock or on some kind of surface, what does the chameleon do? It changes color miraculously and that blends in with its surroundings to where you can't see it. But the problem is for us as Christians is so many Christians try to be chameleons in their life, don't we? We try so hard because we don't want confrontation that wherever we are, we try and blend in with our surroundings so we, what? Look like everybody and everything else around us. Well, one of the, fat, uh, the, the fundamental aspects of being a Christian is we should be easily identifiable, shouldn't we? According to the Bible, when we're placed against the backdrop of the world, we should naturally just stand out. Why? Because this world is called symbolically like a world of darkness filled with sin, and we have been forgiven, and we are called the light of the world, right? You ever gone in a completely dark room and lit up a match or a flashlight or the light on your phone and what happens? Where can you see that light from? Everywhere. I mean, it just radiates out. Even if you're in a big gymnasium and someone turns their, their phone light on clear at the other end of the gymnasium and it's totally pitch dark from the other end of the gymnasium, can you see that light? Absolutely. The Bible says we are the light of the world. And it says a, a light set on a lampstand should not be what? Covered, hidden. Therefore, we should be standing out as Christians. And the problem is we try so hard sometimes to be Christian chameleons and just fit in. Why? Because we don't want the confrontation that the world brings on us. Um, turn with me to Romans 12. We read this verse earlier. Um, this is our key verse going into things. Romans 12, chapter 2, out of New American Standard, says this. It's a negative command to start with from Paul. He says, and do not, in other words, as a believer, as a Christian, as a, a, a child of God, as a person with salvation, do not do this. Do not what? Be conformed to the world. Comma, which always means there's more, right? But do something else. We have a start with a negative command. Do not do this. But then he gives us a positive command. So don't be conformed to the world, but do be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So don't conform, but rather do what? Transform. Be transformed. Okay. This whole sermon series in the next couple weeks is about fitting in versus standing out, okay? Fitting in versus standing out. Now, how many of you can actually remember high school besides you? <laughs> remember high school? Wasn't the big push in high school to what? To fit in, right? You want to be in the cool crowd. You want to fit in with your buddies. and Whatever group you had, you wanted to fit in with that group because it gave you that camaraderie. Now, when I grew up, we were kind of in cowboy town, so we had the cowboy group. We had the stoners, you know, we had the jocks or the athletes, then you had the geeks, the brains, you know, and then there were that group, the nerds that were all there. 
And you know, everyone wanted to fit into one of those groups because it gave them instant camaraderie. You see, the upside of fitting in is that you have instant friends, right? You have an instant group. And we like that when we're honest, don't we? I mean, we liked it in high school and junior high, right? You tried to find a group to fit in. The downside is that you have to change sometimes who you really are to be part of that group, right? You have to adjust your, your speech, your actions, how your outlook is, what you do, to fit into that group. I mean, if you're in the nerd group, you got to be reading books all the time, right? And talking about calculations and, and uh, you know, these theories. If you're in the jock group, well, you got to play sports, right? If you're in the cowboy group, you got your cowboy hat and your cowboy boots and, you know, you're ready to go. If you're in, in the, the other groups, you, you find ways to try and fit in, right? Anybody in here remember trying so hard to fit into a group just to be accepted? So the upside is, yes, you have instant friends. The downside is you're in a false sense of community, right? You're in a false sense of community because you have to change who you are to be part of that group, right? So what happens when you start being who you really are? Well, what happens to your friends in that group? Chances are, not always, but most often, what? They leave you, they make fun of you. They're like, hey, I thought you were part of us. What is wrong with you? Why are you changing? Right? Remember those comments about, why are you different? And they leave you. You see, the real reason we were only accepted was because we pretend to be a person we were what? We were not. It was a fake lifestyle. We pretended to be someone who we really weren't just for the acceptance, to be part of a community, to be part of a group. And that's the problem. As Christians, we're called to be like Christ, to treat others like Christ, and to interact with the world like Christ. So the fact is this, this is a hard part to swallow, but the fact is this, as Christians, if we act just like everybody else in the world, well, the Bible gives us a label, a name. And you know what that name is? Hypocrite, right? Because the Bible says when you become Christian, you no longer live to yourself, you have died to yourself, and you now live unto whom? To Christ. You are a changed person. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are transformed. Not just conform, conforming to something that you and I choose to do, right? You and I choose to conform to be something that we're not. When you're transformed, it's kind of out of your hands. You're changed. If you're transformed from... Uh, West Valley to Bountiful, you're transforming, you're taking on a journey and put in a different location, right? When we're transformed, it's something else that happens to us and changes us. And that's what God does in salvation. He transforms us as Christians to where not only are we forgiven and have salvation and a new life, He changes us into what the Bible calls what kind of creation? A new creation. We are different than we were before. And so the fact is, if we as Christians just end up looking like everybody else in our world as Christians, well, then something's wrong because we are not of this world. We're only passing through and we are a light in the darkness. You see, biblical fact is this. 
God is calling us as followers of Christ to stand out. Do you ever think about that as a Christian? God is saying, I want you to stand out, right? The image of that light on a lampstand, you put a light up to shine in the darkness, right? To, to draw that out there. I mean, even bugs, when you put a bug light up, what happens? Those bugs are just drawn to that light. They leave the darkness and they're drawn to that light. And that's what Christ calls us to be. Now, as we're talking about this, some of us may be thinking, wow, this is a tough thing because I've probably been more conforming than I have been transforming, right? A couple things we want to look at this through this series is, what does conforming look like, okay? What are the patterns we humans are tempted to conform to? What does transformation look like? And what is God's definition of transformation? And once we know what transformation is, what's the purpose behind it, okay? So let's first get a grip on the issue of conforming. What does the word conform mean? Well, Webster says it is this, quote, to assume a similar outward form by following the same pattern as others. In other words, we see something and we choose to adapt to it, to change to it. <clears throat> Talking about conforming, the Bible calls us, and the Bible does this constantly, and I love Richard's um, uh, devotional as we did the communion this morning because it hits this very topic. He talked about the fact of people wanting prayer and wanting to change in that, but when it got down to it, if they're asked what they're doing, well, they're not reading God's Word, they're not in church, they're not doing any of this stuff. They're not where they need to be doing what they need to be doing. They just want all the benefits, right? They don't want to put in the, the changing. Well, the Bible does this. And if you've been reading your Bible, I'm sure you, you've come across this issue where the Bible confronts your conforming, doesn't it? The Bible calls out when we're conforming too much to the world and says, uh-uh-uh, right? You ever notice that, that you're doing something and God just lays that devotional on you that morning, that sermon or that song, and it's like, oh, how did he know? I thought I was being so sneaky, right? The Bible confronts our conforming. How many of you grew up trying to model the behavior of another person? Now, maybe it was a movie star, maybe it was an athlete, uh, maybe it was a superhero, you know, you wanted to be like Superman because he had cool tights, right, and a robe. Maybe not, you know. But how many of you remember trying to make your life like somebody else that you saw? Typically for a lot of people, it probably was an actor, an actress, because when you see them on the screen or on the TV, the movies, their life is just kind of perfect. I mean, they solve life's problems, they overcome world problems within an hour, hour and a half, and you know, everybody likes them and loves them, and they always have the right answers, and they're always, you know, smart and sharp, and, and everything just goes perfect for them. And there are times in our lives when we try to conform to somebody else. But what happens when you conform and you try so hard to grow up, and those lifestyles become habits, and you realize maybe way back when that wasn't the right person to follow? Maybe that person that I thought was so good wasn't the right person to exemplify my life after. Well, fact is, to change that habit, there has to be a confrontation, doesn't it? There has to be a confrontation. And that's exactly what we don't like, right? I mean, all of us have bumper stickers on our cars that says, bring on the confrontation, right? 
I mean, we have our logos on our hats and we just love to have that confrontation, you know? You, you've got your baseball hat, you walk in and says, I'm a Christian, confront me, right? We all have those, right? We sell them in the bookstores, don't we? You know? We don't like that confrontation. If you want to, turn to John chapter 4. I'm going to let you read this one on your own because we won't have time to put it in a sermon. But John chapter 4, verses 1 to 26, it's a story where Jesus has a confrontation with a certain individual about their lifestyle. Um, and the backdrop in the story is this. Jesus is Jewish, Hebrew, he's grown up in that good Jewish society, and there's this little city over here called Samaria. And in Samaria, you know who lived there? Samaritans. Samaritans lived in Samaria. Now, a good Jew was so, had such disdain for Samaritans that a good Jew, if they had to travel to go someplace through Samaria to get there, they would actually go out of their way and travel clear around Samaria so that there was no possible chance of them coming in contact with Samaria because they, they, they had such disdain for this people that they just traveled clear around and missed them completely. Well, Jesus is traveling through with the story in John chapter 4, verses 1 to 26. And instead of going around, he sends his disciples on ahead to do some things. But Jesus actually travels through Samaria as a Jew. And as he travels through, he comes to a well, and it's a hot day out at the, the, you know, the, the Middle Eastern desert. And he comes to this well, and there's a woman out in the heat of the day. We all know the story about the Samaritan woman. And she's out there because she's an outcast of her own people. So not only is she Samaritan, she's an outcast of the Samaritans, a double whammy, right? And Jesus comes to her, and in good Jewish tradition, he should completely avoid her. I mean, as soon as he sees her, what, what should he do as a Jew? Just go completely around and just tell her, stay away from me. But instead, Jesus goes to her and has a conversation. You see, here's the wonderful thing about Jesus. He is not concerned about cultural traditions or expectations. He is concerned about people's salvation. He doesn't care what color your skin is, what sex you are, what culture you come from. He is concerned about your eternal future and whether you're going to be in hell or you're going to be in heaven. And his love for us is so, so strong that he will take the harassment from others to talk to an outcast to bring them to salvation. I mean, you look at Christ's life, and yes, he did talk to wealthy people and political people, which some people didn't think was kosher. On the other end, he talked to prostitutes and leopards and people who were blind and lame and crippled, which other people thought was a no-no and a taboo. He didn't care about social norms. He cared about people coming to salvation and having their eternity secured once and for all. So Jesus comes to this woman and, and he's talking to her about the symbolism of water and he tells her that he is the living water and that if she trusts in him, basically, the story is she will never spiritually thirst again. In other words, when she comes to salvation, she will not have that internal need to conform to the world. And as Jesus is talking to this woman in the story as you're reading it, there's a confrontation point. He kind of tells her, go back and, and get your husband. And she kind of explains to him 
that, well, fact is, um, I really don't have a husband. I'm kind of living with a guy, which in our day, some places is acceptable, some places it still isn't acceptable. But back in that day, it was a major no-no to live with a guy as a woman who you were not married to. Major taboo. And Jesus confronts her. He says, you know, you're being honest. Not only are you living with a guy who's not your husband now, you've done this five times. Jesus confronts her about the choices in her life that are not godly. I mean, flat out confronts it. But what Jesus doesn't do is bash her. He doesn't put her down. He doesn't ridicule her. He doesn't look at her like, oh my goodness, you are such a loser. You never notice when you read that story, Jesus doesn't do any of that. Most of us would, right? Think about someone who's confronted you about some issue you've done, and the adjectives come out, don't they? The, the degrading comments about, well, why would you do something like that? Are you just an idiot? Are you a loser? What's wrong with you? I mean, come on, there's names for people like you, right? Jesus doesn't do any of that. He just confronts her and he says, you're telling the truth. You're not married, you're living in sin, basically, and you've been doing it with five other people before you. What Jesus does do as he confronts that is, when we have that conforming lifestyle to the world, there needs to be a confrontation from God, right? I mean, King David had it from Nathan the prophet, little story about the sheep and, and this big sheep owner stealing a person's other sheep, their one single sheep, and David's getting furious about the story, and what does Nathan say? <laughs> Dude, you're the one that stole the sheep. You had all these others, and you took the one that wasn't yours. There was a confrontation, and Jesus confronts this Samaritan woman about her lifestyle choices, but he doesn't condemn her. But what he does is he gives her the grace to take accountability for that and to make a decision to either stay there or to what? To change. He gives her the grace to say, let's tackle this issue, you and I. It's a sin issue, just like everything else. But now you decide what you're going to do with it. You decide. There are times in our life when we conform to the world that Jesus is confronting us also. You know, again, going back to, to Richard's communion devotion that when we're conforming to the world and then we finally do click on, you know, Christian radio or we listen to a sermon and sermon just happens to be about what we're doing, right? You ever notice that? And it's like, oh. Better change the channel, huh? Right? Oh, here's some static. Man, my, my antenna's not working. I gotta switch this, you know? God will confront us about that. We wanna fit in to be with everybody else, but that's not right. Jesus is trying to come to you and I, like that Samaritan woman, and confront those issues in our life and say, you know what? Rather than this water that you gotta drink all the time, I wanna give you some spiritual water, some living water, which you will never thirst again. You will always be satisfied and you will never go without. Jesus confronts us and gives us that same grace to say, okay, I'm offering you life 
or to stay in your habit of death, which one do you want? And he gives us the grace to make that choice. John 10.10, one of our favorite verses that we talked about, talks about the ways of the devil and the ways of God. The devil comes to what? Steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus comes that we might have life, and not just life, but what does the Bible say? What kind of life? What's the adjective? Abundant. Abundant. That means great, enjoyable, content, exuberant, optimistic, not pessimistic, right? That we might have true life because our salvation is secured in God and we know who we are and we know who we belong to. Jesus will confront us about our conforming. Question is, do you and I want to change? Do we want to be transformed? Well, let's look at another story. John chapter 5. John chapter 5, shorter section of scripture here, verses 1 to 9. I'll let you read the story on your own. John 1, I mean, excuse me, John 5, 1 to 9. It's a story about Jesus walking through the city, and he's walking by this pool of Bethesda, which was this great fountain in the city, and the symbol of them, excuse me, the symbolism of this fountain was this, that the people believed that if you were lame or ill or sick, if you stayed around this pool, there were certain times a day an angel would come and touch the water, and if you were the first one into water at that time, you would be healed. So there's all these people laying around this pool. With that, as all these lame people and sick and paralyzed and diseased people are laying around this pool, other people are walking by, and the people that are laying around the pool of Bethesda are doing what? Great. Do you have anything? We'll lay here for food. Do you have any handouts? Can you help me? Do you have anything to give me? You, you got some spare change on you? I mean, we go through the same thing, right? We drive through the city, we go to the store, and we see the people with the signs up, and please help, and God bless. And by the way, did, do you have some spare change on you? A couple bucks you could just give me? That's the image that's going on here. And Jesus is walking by this pool of Bethesda, and here's the unique thing about this story. Here's what kind of makes it a twist. There must have been dozens of people lying around this pool, right? 30, 40, 50, who knows? A lot of people lying around this pool. Jesus walks through all of these people, basically ignoring 99% of them, but he comes to one individual man. Did you ever notice that about the story? He doesn't just walk through going, oh, be healed, be healed, be healed, be healed, be healed, be healed. He walks through the entire group of crippled, diseased, lame people to one man. And so the question is, what's so different about this one man that Jesus comes to the one man and doesn't deal with all of them and do this mass healing? Well, verse uh, 5, or chapter 5, verse 3 kind of gives us the insight on why this one man. When Jesus comes to this one man, he says... When Jesus saw him lying there and realized that he had spent a long time in his condition, he asked him, Do you want to get well? You see, since Jesus knows the heart of people, he knew the hearts of all those that he was walking through, and he knew the heart of this one man. He knew that this one man really did want to what? be healed 
And the facet of the story is this. All the other people laying around the pool of Bethesda, as Jesus knows their hearts, fact is no matter what they said or what their little billboard said or their cardboard said, they really didn't want what? To be healed. They were content to live off the handouts of other people. You think, well, that's kind of a weird thing, but don't we see it in our society? I mean, we've had numbers of homeless people that have come here and we offer a little bit of food and some stuff. We don't give out cash, but we offer to take them to a place they can get help, food, uh, clothing, uh, a place to stay, uh, a place for recovery, uh, a place they can take a shower and get cleaned up. And most often, what's the answer they give you when you make that offer to them? No, I don't want to go there. I, that's terrible. I don't want that. I just want your cash. I want some food. Right? Fact is, they really don't want help. And so they don't do anything about it. It's the same with people that are not homeless that we know, right? How many times do we pray and try to intercede with someone? And the fact is, their lifestyle screams, I don't want to change. I like my lifestyle, even though I want to complain about an awful lot and how terrible it is and it's not a good lifestyle, I am unwilling to change. You see, it's a heart condition. They don't want to change. And we look at that going, but you could have such a better life and they're like, I don't care. I'm content in the lifestyle that I'm at. Because for some people, what that lifestyle entitles them to do is to be able to constantly complain about how bad it is, right? I mean, you ever see those people that you give them option after option after option to have help, to get resources, to change their lifestyle, and how many of them do they go after? Do you know the message they're trying to say to you and I? I don't want your help. I don't want to change. I just want to complain that somebody should help me and do something for me, and I want to be able to say how bad my life is, but I'm not going to do anything about it. This issue with Bethesda, with the pool of Bethesda, is Jesus is walking, he knows the hearts of the people, that they really don't want to be healed. Because if they were healed, what would that mean for their livelihood? Now they'd have to go to work, right? They couldn't just get handouts and live off of that. They would actually have to do something for their own income, right? They'd actually have to be productive. And they didn't want to do that. But Jesus comes to this one man and basically says, do you want to get healed? And this man's response with this. He says, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm on my way, someone else gets in before me. As Jesus speaks to him, the man kind of in a different way admits, I want to be healed, but when the pool is stirred with the angel, I can't get there fast enough. You see, what happened to this man is what happens to a lot of people when they've been kind of beaten down by life. They only see the obstacle, right? They only see the obstacle and the, 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 they think that they can't overcome it, right? Because here's the scenario. Here's the pool, the water of Bethesda. And right next to this man is standing Jesus, the symbolic, spiritual, living water that can transform his life, right? 
That's the reality. But he's so conditioned to his conditions that he can't see the living water of Christ standing right there. When I read that story, I always think of this. If I was hurting and lame and down and out, like the people around the pool of Bethesda, and Jesus came and said, John, do you want to be healed? It always runs through my mind, and my hope is that I would say yes. But because I know that my heart, as the Bible says, is deceitful and wicked, I wonder if I would. What about you? I mean, that's the question Jesus asked us, asked this man 2,000 years ago, and it's the same question he asks us today, with the difference from conforming to transforming is, do you want to be transformed? Or do you want to just look like everybody else? Do you want to change? Do you want to be healed? Because with that healing comes a different lifestyle, doesn't it? It's a package deal. And there are many in the church that would be very honest and say, uh, no, I like conforming because people like me. They accept me. Their focus is on the temporal and here and now. Their focus is not where? In the eternal where God would have us. The world conforms. Christ and the Word of God transforms. The world tells us, well, if, if you want to be accepted in this world, you got to get a nicer car, a bigger home, take a bigger vacation, uh, spend your money instead of save it, uh, treat yourself, take a break, you know, blah, blah, blah. You deserve better. There's all this stuff out now about deserve. Deserve. You know, I remember the old quote, uh, I think it was Kennedy, President Kennedy said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do, what? For your country. And it's kind of the same in biblical terms that ask not what God can do for you because in salvation he's already done it, but ask yourself what you can do for God, right? But the mantra of our world, which they think there are absolutely no absolutes, which is kind of a weird thing to think of, that, you know, well, I deserve better. I need better. I deserve for to be able to say whatever I want with no consequence, to do whatever I want with no consequence. I deserve this. And the Bible confronts us with that because the Bible tells us that as people, we do deserve something. You know what the Bible tells us we deserve because of our sin? We deserve hell. That's what we deserve. And God doesn't give us what we deserve when he asks them for salvation. God gives us completely what we don't deserve, doesn't he? That's what he gives us. The world conforms, but the word of God transforms. And going back to Richard's devotion, I should have just had him give the sermon this morning, is I think there's a direct correlation between the time we spend in God's word and our transforming life versus the time we don't spend in God's word and our conforming life, right? I mean, the longer we're away from church and God's word and fellowship and stu Bible study, the longer we're away from that, what do we tend to do? We conform more to the world, right? 
and that draws us away from God. So the question is, what do you fill your time with? When you have that downtime, I mean, I have a little bit of downtime with my work that I have some travel time. What do I fill that time with? Well, I could fill it with all kinds of things. But the Bible calls me to fill it with something that draws me closer to God, doesn't it? That's that transforming power is doing something to transform my life, to protect me from conforming my life. You see the correlation? The more time we spend in God's word keeps us from conforming. Romans 12, 2, once again, says this. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing, perfect will. So as we close up, here's the question. A couple questions, as a matter of fact, as we go forward to the next couple sermons in the series is, do you want to be transformed? I mean, do you really want that? Do you want to be healed? Do you want that living water of Christ? Do you want the way of Christ? Do you want to be transformed instead of conforming? As we close up, I want to encourage you as you wrestle with that question, because most of us have our answer that we want to put out there. Oh, yeah. But like the guy at the pool of Bethesda, like the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, do we really want it enough to do something about it? With that, let me share with you what the cost of conforming is. Now, most of us in here take the financial peace study, right? And Dave Ramsey says that normal is stupid, right? Because he says, what is normal? And this is what conforming does to us. This is to be normal, to conform to the normalness of the world. This is what conforming does. It puts us in debt, right? Because normal financially is you spend more than you bring in, right? You buy more than you have. And you know what? You'll just get those stimulus checks and you can take out a payday loan. And you know what? You can declare bankruptcy every seven years. You just... You just enjoy yourself. You just spend more than you have. Don't worry about saving. When you get old, the government will take care of you. Right? The cost of conforming is indebtedness, addiction, depression, dependence on others to care for you, lack of honor and dignity, lying to yourself, to God and to others, faking it, basically being someone you're not, right? Isn't that the cost of conforming? Just like it was in high school, as you have to be someone you're really not to fit in. Well, here's the good thing about being transformed. The Bible tells us that while we were still sinners, while we were still a hot mess screwed up, in sin, making wrong decisions, bad life habits, while we were still in that condition, that God sent his only begotten son because he loved us to transform us. That God said, I love you exactly the way you are, for who you are. You don't need to be someone you're not. 
But he says, I love you too much to leave you that way. Let's make you into all you can be. Let's transform you into the image of godliness, to renew your mind in righteousness, to make you a new creation that's not marked by sin or stain or guilt or shame or bad decisions. Let's make you brand new. You see, that's the transforming power of God in salvation, is he loves you already, right? He loves you when you fail and he loves you when you don't. But he says, let's transform you into the image of godliness and make you kind of like the army poster. Remember seeing the army poster growing up? What's it say? Be all that you can be. That's what God's saying to us. He goes, let me transform you to be all that you can be. And let me transform you into that which you can't do yourself. Don't conform. Transform. Don't be the chameleon because the cost is really too high in the end. But be transformed and your salvation and your life is secure. Because when you and I are transformed, the Bible tells us that we are content. And contentment with godliness, the Bible says, is one thing. Great gain, right? It's good. There's no downside to it. It's like saving your money all your life, and then you get to retirement, and we're like, oh, wow, I got $3 million. How'd that happen? Well, I saved all my life. I put a little bit away. I sacrificed here for the future, and that's what transforming is. It's constantly investing and renewing our mind in godliness and being that light that shines in the world and not worrying about the confrontation because it'll come. But you know what, here's the big picture. When you conform, there's still confrontation, isn't there? So you're gonna get confrontation either way. You might as well do it the right way and be transformed in God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and praise you for your word as it confronts us and the story of the, the Samaritan woman and the story of, of the man around the pool of Bethesda. And Lord, as you ask us the same question, do you want to be transformed? Do you want to be healed? Do you want to have that living water? Do you want to be the light of the world? I pray that our heart and mind and spiritual answer is yes. That we choose not to conform to the ways of the world, but to be transformed by your gracious power and your love upon us. And we ask this for our lives and for your glory, in Jesus' name.